Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 tonight. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Might as well address the elephant in the room. Some of you have made some comments about color of my shirt and tie tonight, and I just want to go on the record. These are the church colors, and so I <laughs> just want to make sure to get that on the record. I've also received a lot of comments about the the length of the message tonight, um, but you need to understand uh, this preaching tonight is, is kind of like a stress management uh, procedure for me. The longer I preach, the less stress will be on me, so I, I do realize this evening that for some of you, the exact opposite is the case. The more I preach, the more stressed you'll get, so we'll try to meet in the middle and make sure everyone's happy and probably no one will be happy, but that's fine. All joking aside, we want to hear from God tonight. First Thessalonians chapter 2, we left off in our study in uh, chapter 1 last week, and so we pick up chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, Neither of you nor yet of others when we might have been burdensome as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail. For laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Lord, would you help us tonight as we open your word? Would you help me to think biblically and clearly to be able to present the the thoughts, what you have communicated to us, that we would not only understand the meaning, but understand why you preserve this for us and what you want us to do with what you preserve for us. Direct and guide the message tonight, and may we leave here encouraged and strengthened and even challenged um, to be the kind of servants of you that you want us to be. And we ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now tonight, it's always a joy to have some baptisms and to be able to, to hear about how God has worked in people's lives and how he's used different details. Um, though the, the, the plan of salvation is the same for every individual, the details that God uses to, to uh, take someone through that path and that plan, they're always, they're always different. It's a joy to hear about how God worked in bringing people to salvation. It's a joy to hear testimonies about how God has used our witness, both personally our witness, but then as a church, as we gather together, how God has used our collective witness um, and how God has used that to impact people. And it's a joy, like the, the men's prayer meeting on Sunday mornings, and just be able to hear 
about how uh, different individuals were intersected with the gospel. It ought to be on the heart of every believer a longing to see people experience the same salvation that we've experienced. To see people receive Jesus as their, their personal Savior as we have received Jesus as our Savior. We long to, to not only be involved in ministry, and I think um, if you're not involved in ministry, there, there, is that, there, there is that part of you as a believer that's kind of been, been squelched. It's been shoved to the corner. And you'll find when you get involved, it's like, what, this is what I've been missing. This is what I've, I've meant for. So there's a longing to be involved in ministering to people, but not just being involved in it. Not just saying, you know, I, I did the thing. I, I, I went with the gospel. I, I handed out tracts. I did Bible studies. But beyond just those things, and those are all good things, I think there's a longing in all of us that we would be effective in our ministry of the gospel. Not just that we would be giving it out, but that when we give it out, it has an impact. It has an effect. And that's what really caught my mind reading this passage this week, really in the first verse. Paul says, You for yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. And that statement really caught my attention. Paul went to Thessalonica, the city of Thessalonica, with, with uh, Silas and, and with, uh, with Timothy. And their, their purpose was to preach the gospel. Their, their purpose was to see people saved. Their purpose was to plant churches. And Paul says, I can go back in my mind's eye and I can remember that our entrance in, when, when we entered into the city, when we first started preaching the gospel to you, it was not vain. It was not empty. It was not meaningless. In other words, the ministry that we had in the city of Thessalonica was effective. It made a difference. And there's really little doubt of this, that Paul's ministry in this city made a difference. It made a tremendous difference. From some of the details that we read, we have read, we will read in this letter, we learn that the ministry among the Thessalonians bore great fruit. Tremendous fruit. And that's in spite of the fact that a very short time was actually spent in the city of Thessalonica. Minimum of three weeks because of how the ministry is described of preaching for three weeks in the synagogue. It was probably a little longer than that. Maximum really just a few months. Incredible results from just a short time. Incredible results from a short investment that was there. We saw like last week um, in chapter 1 how the people turned to God from idols. They, they, they were worshiping false gods and they heard about the truth and they turned, they repented, their, their lives were changed. We saw how they were involved in fulfilling the Great Commission last week. We talked about how their faith was sounded out both in their region of Macedonia, but the neighbor, neighboring region of Achaia, and then all those places where their faith was spoken of. The gospel is going forth. It's sounding out from them. So they're involved in evangelism. They're involved in fulfilling the, the Great Commission. We know that these believers did not wither in the face of persecution. The church was started in, in uh, the midst of persecution, 
And we're told in chapter 2 that that persecution did not necessarily cease when Paul left town. It continued. And yet we find a group of believers who did not step away from that persecution. It, it, It did not cause them to renounce their faith. They stayed strong in spite of what they faced. Incredible results. We find no rebuke, no correction in First and Second Thessalonians for this church. We also find uh, Paul now writing about a year and a half later from the entrance that he's talking about here in chapter 2. We find him talking that in, in chapter 5, there's an indication in verse 12 that even by this point, a year and a half later, they already have multiple men who are serving as pastors laboring in the ministry. A church that's a year and a half old. We learn from Acts chapter 20 that they trained men and sent out men like Jason and Aristarchus and Secundus. I mean, a young church, great fruit. We could say tonight that the ministry that Paul invested in Thessalonica, it was a fruitful ministry. It was an effective ministry. And I hope tonight as you think and consider yourself that you have a desire to be involved in effective ministry. The question is, how? Right? How do we be involved in effective ministry? Now, I realize tonight, and I want to be careful not to overstep my bounds, we're called to be ministers of the gospel. We are not to, we're not to wrangle and produce results. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. There's, there's no power in us necessarily. The power is in the truth of the gospel and the Holy Spirit using that to uh, apply that to people's lives. But we do understand that we can, be in, we can be involved, we can be a part of hindering that, of standing in the way of that. And if we want to be effective ministers, that's the one thing we don't want to do, is stand in the way of what God wants to do. And I think we see in the ministry of Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he goes back in his, in his memory and relives what it was like to enter the city of Thessalonica, what it was to preach the gospel, what it was to organize those believers and, and, and share his heart with them. As he recounts all of that to us, we're going to see some keys to effective ministry. There's five of them that I see. And, and if you kind of break it down in your Bibles, you'll notice that just about there's a pattern in the nine verses that we read uh, of two verses per sentence. And so there's a sentence in verse 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6, 7 and 8, and then also in verse 9. Verse 9 sort of breaks that pattern. And so from each of those sentences, we draw out Paul's main point, what he's trying to say. And from those five sentences, we get five keys to effective ministry. The first key in verse 1 and 2 is the key of perseverance. The key of perseverance he says, you know our entrance into you, in unto you was not in vain, but verse 2, but even after we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Perseverance. What Paul is saying is we, we faced some opposition and yet we were bold. Take a moment and think about the opposition, Paul's mistreatment. Most of you are familiar with the story in Acts 16, but if you want to just hold your place here, let's go back to Acts 16. What is Paul talking about when, when, he, when he talks about how they were shamefully entreated, how, how they were uh, not treated in, in the right way there in, in Philippi? And that was the city that Paul had just come from just before 
he traveled to Thessalonica. Go to Acts 16. We're not going to read the entire story, but just a few key verses. You'll notice if we pick up in verse 19, after they've preached the gospel um, to Lydia, those people that, that uh, she knew. And then, of course, Paul cast this demon out of this, this girl who had brought great gain to her masters because of, uh, of her, her ability in the, in the spirit realm. And, of course, now that was gone without the demons in her. Pick up in verse 19, when her masters saw that the hope of her gains was gone, or their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas. They drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and besought them, or, and brought them, sorry, and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them. And the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a, a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Think about Paul's mistreatment. He uses, in our text, he uses the word suffered. We, we suffered there in Philippi. And, and you heard it. We read it. They were beaten with many stripes. They were cast into the innermost prison. Their feet were made fast in stocks, not very comfortable. And, and the, and the picture that, that I get, I'm sure most of you as well, of this, of this deep, dark, dank sort of place, damp, um, not a pleasant place at all. They're mistreated. They, they suffered because they dared to preach the gospel. They suffered in a great way. And not only did, were they uh, suffering, they were shamefully entreated. In other words, that, that, that phrase means to be treated outrageously. They were not only insulted and slandered, which we read those verses. The, we, we, you know the real motive was these men were not getting the paycheck that they were used to receiving. They were, they, they, the, 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 the hope of their gains in this young lady was lost. And that's why they were upset. Everything else that they spake, that said out of their mouth, it was just a lie. It was not true. It was slander. They were mistreating Paul and Silas. And not only that, we find out later, and Luke is very helpful for us in recording the fact that the way they were treated, the way that they were abused was not only on a human level, not only was it wrong, just humanly speaking, but it was legally wrong. If you're still in Acts 16, skip down to uh, verse 35. Paul points this out. He says, When it was day, the magistrate sent the sergeant, saying, Let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this, saying to Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans. You'll notice they didn't talk about that in the condemnation. They called them Jews. He said, No, we're, we're Romans. They've cast us into prison, and now do they thrust us out privily? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. They're going to send a messenger to kind of undo the illegal things that they did, how they violated our rights. They're going to do that with the messenger? Uh Uh-uh. You tell them to come and do it themselves. And they did. Verse 38, the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard they were Romans. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. They said, we're sorry, but please leave. Just get, get out of here. 
Okay? So they, Paul suffered and, and Silas suffered. They were shamefully treated. Their rights were violated. I mean, there was every reason for Paul and Silas and Timothy. There was every reason for them to be discouraged, to be demoralized, to think about quitting. I mean, you're abused. You're mistreated. Your rights are violated. You're slandered. No one seems to want you around. I mean, that to me sounds like, boy, now it's time to just wave the white flag and say, you know what, maybe this, this isn't for us. Maybe this, we, we would, we would we'd be better off in a different region, in a different area. But you notice what Paul says in verse 2. Even after we had suffered and were shamefully entreated, we were bold in our God. Think about Paul's boldness. Boldness. We heard about it this morning. In fact, there's going to be a lot of similarities. I did study for this message. I didn't just copy things from this morning, just, just for, so you know, all right? They were already in here. But I was just marveling the, how God brings some of these ideas together this morning. But Paul is bold in spite of, and that's why I chose the word perseverance. Because it's one thing to be bold when you're winning. It's one thing when, when you're up, you know, yeah, we're the best. But when you're losing, when everything is going wrong, when you're not being treated the way that you really believe you deserve to be treated, and they, did, they didn't deserve to be treated in the way they were. I mean, I feel like just, man, maybe I should find something else to do. But instead, Paul was bold. And the idea of being bold is being able to speak freely with assurance. I think there is a temptation for Paul to say, well, perhaps I should preach the gospel, but do so in a way that's less offensive. Perhaps I should go out, uh, go about ministry in a way that won't stir the hornet's nets just as much as before. But no, he says, I'm bold. We were bold. We were able to speak freely, straightforwardly, without fear. They didn't hold back because of their suffering. They were not intimidated because they were mistreated. But they were bold. And lest we think, because I know we have this impression of the Apostle Paul, that he was just naturally this bold, lion-like leader. And I do think there's, there's some indication that, that he, had, he was a man of great leadership qualities. But this boldness was not a fleshly bravado. There's a lot of fans, you know, tonight that have a lot of freshly, fleshly bravado and do things that are bold, all right, um, that uh, don't make a lot of sense. Like, why did you, uh, why did you climb that light pole? I don't know. That's bold, right? But that's just flesh, right? This is not something that Paul's just reaching in and just, yeah, yeah. Not that kind of boldness. He says it in the text. We were bold... How? Where? We were bold in our God. We were bold in our God. This boldness came from God. Now think about this. This is something that I had never really put together. So Paul is traveling. This is his second missionary journey. He's gone from Philippi. We just looked at that. From Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea. And then on to Athens, and then from Athens to Corinth, and Corinth is the place where he's writing now this letter back to Thessalonica. So he's in Corinth. 
Do you know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul tells, he, he rehearses for the Corinthian believers how he entered the city of Corinth? He says that we entered in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Hmm. Kind of sounds like Paul had, you know, his boldness tank was running a little bit low. But you know, if you read in Acts 18, it was God himself who came to Paul in a vision. Acts 18 and verse 9, I love the words of the Lord to Paul. Be not afraid. Speak, for I have much people in this city. And we see Paul being bold once again. The boldness was not naturally flowing out of his personality. The boldness came from God. And if we're going to be bold, if we're going to use this key to effective ministry, if we're going to be bold, then we're going to have to get that boldness from God, not from ourselves. And you notice what this boldness produced. We were bold in our God to speak, to open our mouths. It's so much easier just to to be quiet. So much easier just to not say anything at all. Don't upset the apple cart. Don't make waves. Uh, uh, don't, don't, don't cause a, a, a lot of attention to yourself. Just, just be quiet. It's a lot easier to be quiet. But if we're bold and we're bold in God, He's going to bring us to a place where we're going to speak. And what are we going to speak? We're going to speak the gospel of God. I won't go into it. We heard all about it this morning. The offense of the gospel. The offense in the fact that we are not right with God. The offense that we cannot get right with God on our own. The offense of it took the Lord Jesus Christ shedding His blood on the cross just so that you and I could go to heaven. If we were the only sinners on this earth, Jesus still would have to die, shed His blood for us. That is offensive on so many different levels. And that God now has provided a Savior and He wants you to humble yourself and repent, acknowledging your sin and the fact that you need Him and you're, you, you can't do it on your own. That offends our human beliefs about ourselves. Can I say, parents, that offends the human beliefs of your children? doesn't matter how much you raise them in a Christian home. It's great that you do. It's great that they're here in church. But they still need to do business with the fact that in themselves, in their flesh, is a human being that says, I don't like God, I don't want God, I don't agree with God. And they've got to do business with that. Now that might take, that might take some time, but it needs to happen. It needs to happen. They're speaking the gospel of God, it's offensive. Even to those that sort of grow up around it. Even to those who can tell you all about it, it still offends them way down deep inside. They're speaking the gospel of God. And this boldness to speak the gospel is not just because all of the barriers are removed. It's not just because, hey, we got out of Philippi and now no, no more cost, right? He says we're bold in our God to speak the gospel of God with much contention. The word contention is the Greek word agon, as in agony. And that's what they experienced in Thessalonica, struggle. Conflict. Their boldness was not due to the lack of opposition. In fact, their boldness was in spite of the opposition they faced. So, key to effective ministry, we need to be perseverant. Key number two, 
sentence starting in verse 3, ending in verse 4. Number two, purity. And by purity, I mean purity of motive. Look in verse 3. For our exhortation, our message that we were preaching, what we wanted you to do was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to, put, to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Purity of motive. Without ulterior motive. He says at the end of verse 4 that we preach not as pleasing men, but pleasing God. Here's a question. I hope you're involved in preaching the gospel with your life. That is God's will for you. But here's a question for you if you are. Why do you preach the gospel? Why do you strive to be a witness? Why do you seek to to reach people with salvation? What is your motive? We see Paul here laying out some impure motives. The impure motives you see in verse number 3. We have the impure motive of deceit. And that word deceit, it's used ten times in the New Testament. Seven out of the ten times it's translated as error. So the idea that Paul is communicating with this verse is our, our, our preaching was not a bunch of truth, but laced with just enough error to cause you to, to trip up. There's error sort of hidden in there. And you were deceived because you couldn't, couldn't see it. Often, the cults of our day will give you just enough truth so that you won't notice the error that is slipped in. Here Paul is saying that he wasn't trying to slip anything past them. He wasn't trying to get, to get error into them. The pure, unadulterated gospel was all that Paul preached. There's no deceit. There's no error. Second motive is the motive of uncleanness. That word uncleanness means that which is tainted by lust and sensuality. Peter describes the false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, notice this description. I think I, yeah, I have it on there for you. It says, For when they speak, these are the false teachers now, they speak great swelling words of vanity. They allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, and that has the idea of Uh, of no restrictions on your desires. They allure those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. You notice what they were using. They were using the lusts of the flesh. They were using wantonness to attract people. They were using empty promises of gain and, and blessing. Or we could say, People refer to it this day, you know, you come to salvation and God will fix all of your problems. God will bless you. God will will bring great wealth and prosperity into your life if you get saved, if you come to Him. What is that? That That is a gospel that is tainted with lust. It's tainted with sensuality. It's you, you want you want salvation because it's the key to getting everything that that you desire. You, You know. You want to go to heaven, right? Just just repeat this prayer and and you can go to heaven. Receiving Jesus, accepting Jesus is is a way to get all that you want. That's sensuality. That is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is you and I are not right with God. We're lost. 
We are separated from God. And sometimes coming to grips with the fact that I need to do business with Jesus because he was the one that was provided by God for my sin. Sometimes doing business with God in that way could just begin some problems for you, not bring them all to a close. This is not all about getting what you want and living the happy life and the quote-unquote fulfilled life. And I believe there's fulfillment, true fulfillment. So the, the worldly fulfillment kind of life. It's not what it's about at all. Paul was not trying to change the message to make it more attractive and more palatable to man. He wasn't hearkening to their, he wasn't calling to their, their lusts and saying, this is, this is what you want because it's the key to living for yourself. So he, he uh, mentions deceit. He mentions uncleanness. He also mentions guile. The word guile means craft or deceit. It means manipulation. A creative packaging of the gospel in order to twist someone's arm to get them to respond in the way that you want them to respond. Presenting the gospel in a form of stagecraft or salesmanship or some sort of sleight of hand. We ought not to preach the gospel in that way. Just so we can say, hey, some more people, you know, accepted Jesus. That's another, that's another uh, you know, mark. That's another approval of who I am. Notch on my belt, whatever you want to say. I feel really good. I, I want all of these souls to, to Christ. Did you? Or did you just trick them into doing what you wanted them to do? And there's no real heart change. That's preaching the gospel with guile, with craft, with deceit and manipulation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, he says that he had denounced that he had renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Do we really believe the gospel is that powerful? Think about in places in the world where the gospel goes forth and people know if I receive that gospel, if I receive the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to be renounced by my family. They'll treat me as if I was dead or go about trying to do the deed themselves. What is the attraction? But you know what? The gospel, people investing, commending themselves in the gospel to every man's conscience is a powerful thing. And those that you know, have a desire to be right with God, they'll respond to that. It, we, don't, we don't need to trick people into it. We don't need to you know, put together this, this flashy presentation that will, you know, nobody, can, nobody can resist. It's not about that at all. We're not preaching with craft and deceit and manipulation. We're just speaking the truth and speaking the truth in love. The kind of preaching that Paul's referring to with these impure motives is the kind of preaching that is self-fulfilling preaching. It is being involved in ministry, preaching the gospel, speaking to others, but doing so for gain, doing so for popularity, doing so for recognition or appreciation, or in our day and age, you know, having more followers or more views or more likes. That's self-fulfilling 
preaching. And that is a wrong motive. So he deals with some impure motives. But in verse 4, he also lays out some pure motives. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. There's a lot in this verse, but just real quickly, notice the pure motives. First of all, there is humility because of privilege. He says, we were, think about this now, we were allowed of God. Do you understand tonight? We don't have to be a witness. We get to be a witness. God lets us. He allows us. As we were allowed of God, and then he said we're allowed of God to be put in trust. And the idea there is that we've been entrusted with something, that God has deemed us worthy to entrust us with the most wonderful, magnificent thing ever, uh, ever to be written, the, wonder, the most wonderful story ever to be penned. And he said, I'm, I'm entrusting you with this message and I'm entrusting you to share it with the world. And Paul says, I, 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 I'm still blown away by the fact that God has deemed me worthy to, to put this in my trust. And so as a result, even so we speak. Because of this incredible privilege, this humbling privilege that we have, even so we speak. And as we heard this morning, we understand that the gospel is not our message. It doesn't belong to us. It's His message that He has entrusted to us. We have no right to change it. We have no right to tweak it. We are just the lowly messenger. The gospel is His message, not mine. And that also means, it also enables me, because when the message is mine and I am rejected, how do I take that? I take it personally. It's an offense to me. But if the message is his and it's rejected, is there personal offense? No. It's not me. I'm just communicating the message. Perhaps the reason why we take rejection so personally is because it's our message and not his. There's humility because of privilege. There's a motive of, I don't deserve to do this, but God has allowed me to do it. He's put it in my trust. And I'm doing this for Him and not for me. There's humility because of privilege. There's also service because of accountability. He says, not as pleasing men, but pleasing God. Pleasing God, and it is God then, he ends the verse, it is God which trieth the hearts. That's the accountability. God knows your motives. Preaching the gospel is primarily serving God, not pleasing men and not seeking the praise of men. Purity. So our keys, we started with the key of perseverance. We talked about the purity of motive. The third key is in verse 5, and it is the key of sincerity. He says, For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as apostles of Christ. Sincerity. In order to preach the gospel in sincerity, notice three things that Paul says, I refused. First of all, he says, I refused guile, or I refused flattery. 
flattery, the, the fawning over someone, excessive praise. And of course, this is a fleshly tool that we can use. And I like that word in that verse. Neither used we flattery. It's a tool that we can use in order to get the response and the result that we desire. It's kindness and praise with the end goal of manipulation. Last Thursday, we went to Costco and we walked by the wireless salesman. I'm not a big fan of wireless salesmen. I don't think three quarters of them know anything about what they're talking about. This is my own opinion. And of course, this man was very practiced at what he was doing. And, hi, how you doing today? Boy, it's such a nice day today. Boy, isn't your wife a beautiful, lovely lady? Boy, is, you know, all these things. And of course, you know, I can really save you money. I know he can't save me money. I told him, here's what I pay. And it was like, it, like the, the, the expression just dropped right out of his face. Like, I've done the research, buddy. I know what I'm doing, okay? And immediately, it was just kind of like, okay, back off, you know. Was he really wanting to get to know us? Now, my wife is beautiful. But was he really saying that from an objectionable sort of viewpoint? I don't think so. It was kindness and praise with the end goal of making us feel comfortable and manipulating us to get us to do what he wanted to do. Now, maybe perhaps he really wanted to save people money. I don't want to call into question his motives, but he probably just wanted a commission. All right? That's what he was after. That's this flattery. It's the guile. And Paul says, I've refused that. To preach sincerely, to preach truly, I refuse flattery. We did not use words of flattery. As you know, you know when somebody's trying to flatter you and manipulate you. All right? You know. You know that we didn't do that. Nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. He also refused gain. Covetousness. Cloak being a a cover for the true motive, which is covetousness. It's a pretense of greed. It's the idea that my desires, my appetites, my lusts are most important. And it views people as objects to be exploited, or exploited, sorry, objects to be exploited in order to get what is eventually desired. And that gain for us could be a monetary gain, it could be praise, it could be recognition, it could be seen, being seen as, at church as being, you know, one of the evangelists, one of those who really care about souls. Well, if that's the motivation, we're not preaching sincerely. We're preaching with a cover of our own covetousness. We're trying to cover up the fact that we're in this for us, not for him. We're, we're covering over this. And covetousness is one of those difficult things because it's a motive that hides in the heart sometimes. And it can go undetected. But I like how Paul said, God is witness. Tonight, God sees your heart. He knows if you're preaching the gospel because of you and not because of him. Paul says, I refuse the cloak of covetousness. And I also, in verse 6, nor of men sought we glory. He refused glory. Glory is honor. It's praise. And you notice how he says it, neither of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome, 
as the, apostle of, as the apostles of Christ. And what is he saying there? Well, he's saying that as apostles, he had a position that deserved much respect. And he could have been burdensome. And that word burdensome means someone who insists on their worth, who, in, who claims their importance. And he would have been... He would have been okay in doing so. It would have been acceptable for him to go into Thessalonica and demand respect, to to seek respect, to seek people honoring and praising him because of his position. He was an apostle. Is that position worth honor and worthy of respect? Of course, it is worthy of that. But Paul didn't demand that. He didn't seek it. He said, we didn't seek it from any of you. Not from you, not from anyone else. He could say from his heart, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. He refused glory in order to preach sincerely. Two more, key number four. It's the key of love. Verse 7 and 8, we were gentle among you even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear to us. Now he mentions right away in verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 7, that they were gentle among them. Where does this gentleness come from? Well, he reveals it in verse number 8. We were gentle because ye were dear unto us. That word dear means you were loved. Because we loved you, we were gentle with you. You were dear to us. And notice this gentleness. It's a loving gentleness. He uses the illustration as a nurse with her children. And specifically what that's referring to is a mother who is nursing a child. He's using that illustration Because in that we see gentleness, we see mildness, we see kindness. We see someone that is not rough or harsh or severe. We see someone who is cherishing. And the word cherish means, it literally means to warm something. Kind of like if you can just picture a mother bird with her hens in her nest and and she is nestling them down into her feathers to protect them and keep them warm. She's cherishing them. He says that's how we approached ministry there in Thessalonica. One of the reasons why the ministry was effective is that Paul approached that ministry with a loving gentleness. He approached it with tender love and care. It can be easy sometimes to just sort of charge into the room and demand of people, this is what you need to do. You're lost. You need to be saved. You're lost. You're separated from God. Let me tell you all the things you're supposed to do. One, two, three, four, five, six. And if there's any sort of pause, if there's any sort of difficulty with those, we get all upset. What's wrong with you? Don't you know this is what you're supposed to do? Can I ask you, is that gentle? When we disciple people, when we work with people, and we say, they're not doing what I think they should do. Okay, fair enough. They're probably not doing 
what they should do. But neither are you with that attitude. Are you gentle? And by gentle, picture the, the mother with her child. You know, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men, apt to teach, patient. Patient. As in, people are not progressing at the speed at which I think they should be progressing. People are not moving as fast as I would like them to move. And we get upset. That's not a loving gentleness. If we're to be a servant of the Lord, it's not about striving, it's not about fighting, it's not about do this or else. It is about gentleness and calling them to a relationship with God. Whether that's a lost person, being gentle with the gospel, calling them to respond. Now, we already talked about how we're not changing the message, okay? This is not, you know, a manipulation. This is a heart of love. And because we love them, there's a gentleness that flows out of that love and a patience. It takes time. It takes time for someone to come. I wish it, I wish it was faster. I'm with you. I wish it was like that and it just happened. Sometimes it does. But many times it's a slow process and we've got to be patient and we've got to be gentle. That's a key to an effective ministry. Not only is it a loving gentleness, but it's a loving willingness on top of that. Notice he says, we were willing. We were willing because we were affectionately desirous of you. We were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls. He says, we were affectionately desirous. That has the idea of a longing love. We longed after you to see produced in your life that which is best for you. That which not only pleases God, but is also best for your relationship with God. We, we, we had that longing. And because of that longing, we were willing to give to you, to impart to you, yes, the gospel, the message, but we were willing to give ourselves. Our souls is the word that he uses. Your, your soul is all that you are. It's everything. Nothing hold back, held back. It's your mind. It's your heart. It's your feelings. It's your emotions. It's your entire being. Out of a heart of love, are, are you willing to give of that with the understanding and the very real possibility that you might not see the result that you want to see? Perhaps that's what some of the reasons why we get rough instead of gentle because I'm going to give, but I expect something in return for this. Hmm. There's a loving willingness. It's the key of love that will produce an effective ministry. One more, verse number nine. The key of labor. This is a tough one. You remember, brethren, our labor and travail. For laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Labor is hard work. It's toil. 
I wish there was a way around this. I wish we could say, come, be involved in preaching of the gospel. Come, be involved in discipleship and working with people. It's going to be great. It's going to be easy. But it's not easy. It's hard work. And if labor wasn't enough, he says labor and travail. Travail. Well, that's even deeper. Travail is the difficult, really strenuous labor. It's often used of of a woman in the process of childbearing. In travail. That level of pain. That level of exertion. That level of work. There's no way to short-circuit it. There's no way to say, you know what, I want to be involved in this. I want to be involved in the Great Commission. I want to be involved in evangelism and discipleship. But, you know, I just, you know, I don't have time. I just want to sort of give a, a token few minutes here and there. It doesn't work that way. Or at least it's not going to be effective that way. It takes labor and travail. And this labor is both physical and spiritual. And I believe part of what he's talking about is the physical labor because he mentions um, there in verse 9 that one of the reasons why they labored, laboring night and day, because they would not be chargeable unto any of you. And the idea of being chargeable is being financially burdensome. In other words, Paul was saying, I'm giving up my own physical labors. Who was feeding Paul? And his missions team, Silas, Timothy, who was feeding them? Who was housing them? Who was making sure they had shoes? Who was making sure that they, they, they had clothing to wear? Who was taking care of their needs? Well, at times we know, and even here in Thessalonica, when Paul was here, he received some love offerings, but it wasn't like, you know, consistent monthly support where he could make a budget off of it. But we know Paul. Paul was willing to labor night and day. He was willing to use the skill, the craft that he had developed in making of tents. He was willing to do that in order to earn the money so that he could take care of himself and the missions team as a whole. So that we would not be chargeable to you. So that you would not have to bear the financial burden of hearing the gospel. Now we understand there's a scriptural principle. Paul's going to present it in other places that it's, so it's, it's right for a minister of the gospel to live by the gospel. But in this case, Paul said, you know what? I'm going to take it upon myself to bear the cost so that you can receive the gospel. There was physical labor involved in that. And I think part of this laboring night and day was the physical labor. He had to put the time in to get the money that he needed in order to survive. Physical labor. You know, if we're going to reach people, it's going to take physical labor physical time. We're going to have to sacrifice some things. We're going to have to give up some things. You say, well, no, it doesn't fit in with my schedule. Well, how about rearranging your schedule? Because that's what's more important. Physical labor, but there's also spiritual labor on top of that. And if you've been involved in this for any length of time, you know what I mean. And he says there in verse 9, we wouldn't be chargeable to any of you Because we wanted to preach unto you the gospel of God. He uses the word preach. Preaching is more than just a nice talk. There's exertion that's involved in it. Some of you know you've sat down and you've done a Bible study with someone. You've worked with someone. 
And you walked away and, man, you're wrung out. You didn't do jumping jacks. You didn't do a physical workout, but you did some spiritual work. And that's tiring. It's exhausting. We preached. We preached the gospel. We were willing to labor. And if we're going to be effective in ministry, we're going to have to labor. We're going to have to put in the time. We're going to have to put in the effort in order to be effective. So tonight we see five keys for effective ministry. Perseverance in the face of persecution. In the face of mistreatment. Perseverance. Purity. Preaching without ulterior motive. But for the motive of pleasing God. If we're going to be effective in ministry, we're going to need sincerity. It's not our message. It's His message. We have no right to change it. It is our it is our job just to present it. We're not all about bringing ourselves glory and doing it for what we can gain. It's all about Him. It's not about us. Sincerity. Then love. Do we love people enough to be gentle? Enough to be willing to give of ourselves with no promise of retribution or return. Love, and it's going to take some labor. It's going to take some work, some travail, some toil. May we strive tonight to minister the gospel in a way that God can bless. In a way that is, even as we could look at Paul's ministry here to the Thessalonians, is effective. We're not just going about spinning our wheels, but God is actually using us to accomplish His will. I want to be effective in ministry. How about you? We've been talking about living in these last days, the pattern. There's a pattern for us to follow if we want to be effective in ministry, like Paul was effective in ministering in Thessalonica. And may we strive to minister the gospel in that way.